and open up this morning to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Spending Christmas in the book of Jeremiah, the Christmas season in the book of Jeremiah. Last week we were in chapter 22, now we're backing up to chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, going to read verses 1 through 13 together this morning. can be found on page 746 if you're using a pew Bible. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God read for you now. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Thus far the reading of God's own word. My friend, let me ask you this morning, is your heart restless? Is your spirit agitated? Is something in your soul amiss and unsatisfied? Is there something you're looking for that you just can't seem to find? Well, if so... The Bible tells you what your problem may very well be. You are drinking from the broken cisterns of this world, which do not satisfy. 
rather than from the fountain of living water, who alone can and does satisfy. Let's turn our attention to the text. Once again, I remind you that Jeremiah was given the unenviable task of telling the people of Judah that because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, judgment was coming upon them by means of the Babylonians. Jeremiah chapter 2 marks the beginning of Jeremiah's prophetic word against Judah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, we read about Jeremiah's call to the prophetic office in Judah. In Jeremiah 2, we read about the beginning of Jeremiah's prophetic word against Judah. And you'll notice that Jeremiah wastes no time getting to the heart of the matter. No, in the first 13 verses of chapter 2, we see clearly what the problem is. Israel has turned away from the Lord, and they've turned to idols. Or as Jeremiah puts it so wonderfully in verse 13, Israel has forsaken the fountain of living waters in favor of broken cisterns which hold no water. There are three lessons we learn here. The first is a lesson from Israel. The first is a lesson from Israel. Again, Israel had forsaken God and turned to idols. That was their fundamental sin. And yet the fact that Israel has forsaken God implies what? It implies that at one time they loved God and they trusted God. And indeed they did. Look what we read in verses 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of His harvest, all who ate of it, all who, all who uh, um, oppressed it, oppressed Israel, incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. You see what's being said there in verses 2 and 3. There was a time when the relationship between the Lord and Israel was sweet. There was a time when the relationship between God and His people was precious, but things changed. Israel turned away from the Lord, and we read about that in verses 5 through 8, right? Verse 5, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Verse 6, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? Verse 7, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits, but when you came in, you defiled my land. Verse 8a, the priests even did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed me. God is making it clear, right? Israel stopped looking to the Lord. Israel stopped trusting the Lord and listening to the Lord. And of course, when they turned away from the Lord, they didn't turn to nothing. No, they turned to other gods, didn't they? They turned to idols. And you read about that in verses 8b through 11. Verse 8b says, the prophets prophesied by Baal, 
and went after things that do not profit. Verses 10 and 11, for cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? And yet God essentially says, this is exactly what you have done. Israel turned away from the Lord and they turned to idols. They stopped worshiping and serving the true God and, and began to worship and serve false gods. And after rehearsing this sad history of Israel, Jeremiah brings the Lord's charge against his people. You see that in verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns. That can hold no water. The image of a fountain in cisterns is a metaphor for Israel's turning away from God and turning to idols. We're going we're gonna to get more into that uh, in the next point. But for now, just, just notice Israel's trajectory. Notice how, notice how Israel went from having a sweet and precious relationship with the Lord to a, to a sour relationship with the Lord. They went from being faithful to the Lord to unfaithful. They, they changed their glory for that which does not profit. They turned from God to idols. Notice the trajectory. And as we see this trajectory, we're reminded, I'm reminded at least, you're going to be reminded of it in a second, of what John Calvin said about the human heart. John Calvin said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. That means that the human heart continually produces idols and pumps out idols and makes things into idols and fashions for itself idols to worship in place of the one true God. The human heart has this this ability. The human heart is gifted in this way. It can make idols, and it does make idols. Consider what happened in the days following the flood. God, as we know, He wiped out sinful humanity and all of their idols. Only believing Noah and his sons were left. And yet, listen to what we read in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua 24, verse 2. This is what we read. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, And they served other gods. All right? That's what Joshua says to the people of Israel about Abraham's father. Abraham's father served other gods. Okay? The the story of the flood ends in Genesis chapter 9. The story of Abraham begins in Genesis chapter 12. What are we told about Abraham's father that he served other gods, right? So at the end of Genesis 9, every idol and every idol worshiper on the face of the earth has been done away with, and yet the very next character who the Bible focuses our attention on in Scripture, Abraham, is the son of an idol worshiper. How in the world can this be? Where do these idols keep coming from? The answer is right here. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. 
Of course, the Apostle Paul acknowledges this in Romans 1 when he says in Romans 1 that sinners are fundamentally people who worship created things rather than the Creator. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And no doubt we see this in our day as well. Tim Keller writes, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. It is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family or children, career or making money, achievement and critical acclaim, saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, a social cause, your morality, or even success in Christian ministry. Really anything is what he's saying. But again, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart, even today, continues to pump out idols and to turn things into idols. There's a good possibility that some of us here this morning are like Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2. We knew a time of sweet and precious fellowship with God, but we don't any longer. And we wonder why. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's because we've turned away from the Lord and began looking to the things of this world to give us what only God can truly give us. We have the natural ability to do that. It comes easy for us. If we let our guard down, well, we'll find ourselves off the path of worshiping the true God and serving idols. It's possible. Maybe technology has become your God at least functionally. Maybe it used to be that when you were anxious and unsettled, you turned to God's Word. Now you turn to your phone. I find myself doing that sometimes. What in the world do I think I'm going to find in my phone that's going to help me? But I, I do that. It's the weirdest, dumbest thing. It may be that it used to be when you had quiet time. You went to the Lord in prayer. Now you turn on a podcast, right? Maybe technology, functionally, has taken the place of God in your life. Maybe a relationship has become your God. You look to a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, a child, to give you what only God can give you. Maybe money and success has become your God. It has become the thing which you pursue at all costs because you believe that if you just have a little bit more money or a little bit more fame, then all your problems will go away. I don't know. But if your relationship with God has become strained, if it's not as sweet and precious and life-giving as it once was, well, perhaps your heart is fashioned an idol. Perhaps you've been drinking from a broken cistern. That's the first lesson, a lesson from Israel. Second, a lesson about idolatry. The picture set before us in verse 13 is a powerful picture regarding the truth of idolatry. 
In the first place, this picture sets before us the foolishness of idolatry. The one who who worships and serves idols is like the one who chooses to dig a cistern when he has access to a fountain or spring of flowing water. That's what we're being told in in verse 13. And and the picture in verse 13 is, is a picture that would have been familiar in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah's day, the most valuable thing a landowner could have on his property was a spring of flowing water. If you had a spring of flowing water on your property, you had something special because in that spring, you continually had supply of fresh, clean water for yourself and for your livestock. A spring of flowing water was invaluable. Those who did not have springs on their property, and most didn't in this time and place, those people had to dig cisterns in the ground. And what cisterns are, most simply, are are storage tanks. Cisterns are a place in the ground to hold water. Now, as you can probably guess, relying on a cistern for your supply of water was a pain. It was a pain because those who dug cisterns not only had to dig them, but they also had to figure out how they were going to get water into the cisterns, and so they would have to build a system which, you know, ultimately funneled water into the cistern. And it was a pain because those who dug cisterns also had to keep the cisterns sealed so they actually held water. And to do this in the ancient world, uh, people would line the inside of a cistern with lime plaster. The problem with lime plaster is the problem with any plaster. Eventually, it begins to crack. And once this lime plaster cracked, well, the cistern leaked. It no longer held water. It was a broken cistern. So relying on a cistern for your water was a constant battle. And then, of course, there's the practical aspect that water in a cistern is stagnant. It's not fresh and flowing, clean and pure. And so you can see why having a spring of flowing water was a great blessing in Jeremiah's day. And you can see why no one in their right mind would choose to dig a cistern when they had a readily available spring of water. And yet God says that this is exactly what Israel has done in turning away from Him and turning to idols. Okay, God is the fountain of living waters. He is the one who gives a never-ending supply of life and life abundant. He is the one who alone satisfies the thirst in our souls, and who ever and always invites us to drink freely and deeply of His life-giving grace. And this God, He had made Himself known to Israel. He had pledged Himself. He had covenanted Himself with Israel. This spring was available to them, and yet they turned to idols. And idols are are like broken cisterns who leave us thirsty, who leave us frustrated, who leave us wanting. 
And so turning from God to idols, it's as foolish as choosing a cracked cistern over a flowing spring. And sometimes these images, they just help us put things into perspective. And with this image, Jeremiah puts idolatry into perspective for us. He helps us see how foolish we are when we look to the things of this world to do for us what only God can. Secondly, this picture in verse 13 sets before us the worthlessness of idols. Notice idols aren't just like cisterns. They are like broken cisterns. Never mind stagnant water. Broken cisterns don't have any water in them at all. Broken cisterns leak. Broken cisterns are dry. Broken cisterns cannot satisfy your thirst. They cannot water your animals. They are useless. And so it is with idols. They're worthless. They leave you thirsty and wanting more. Think of those things. Think of something you thought you had to have. Right? Think, of, think, of your, um, think of a time in your life when you said, you know, if I just have this, I'll be happy. I can think of something uh, in my life. Uh, think of, if I just have this, I'll be happy. Uh, and then you actually get that thing, right? You don't always get that thing, but sometimes we do. And I can think of a time when I thought, if I have this, I'll be happy, and I got it, right? You get that thing, right? And then, and then uh, does, it, does it really make you thoroughly, truly, eternally happy? Does it really fix all your problems like you thought it would? Does it really make life all that much more worth living? No, it does not, right? That's idols. They can't satisfy your thirst. They're, they're, they're worthless in that regard. Third, the picture sets before us the oppressive nature of idols, doesn't it? Notice God doesn't accuse His people of turning to cisterns that are already there. He accuses them of turning to cisterns which they've proceeded to hew out or dig out for themselves. I mean, that's even, that even makes the whole image more foolish, doesn't it? Oh, there's a spring of living water. I'll get a shovel and start digging a cistern over here. The cistern's not even there. They dig the cistern out for themselves. Digging out a cistern, as you can imagine, was a labor-intensive process. It was not easy. Points us to the oppressive nature of idols. Idols, we know, do not come with an easy yoke. Or a light burden. No, idols need to be satisfied. Idols need to be appeased. Idols demand certain things of us. Idols are oppressive. Those many, many politicians or, or other people, but politicians have, you know, chased the idol of success and fame and it's come at great cost to their relationships, to their uh, families, right? Idols are oppressive. Serving an idol is like digging a cistern. There is nothing peaceful or restful about it. I think the truth about idols that's captured in this, uh, in this verse here, verse 13, in this image, it's illustrated wonderfully uh, in the story of Jacob. Jacob, uh, his idol at one point in his life, he seemed to have idols a lot, well, yeah, just like us, but uh, Jacob, Jacob's idol was Rachel, right? Jacob desperately wanted Rachel, and so he, he labored hard to get her as his wife, agreeing to work seven years for her father. 
The night of the wedding finally arrived. Jacob thought he had finally gotten what his heart so desperately wanted, what he had been working so hard for. But Laban pulled a fast one, didn't he? And Laban sent in the older sister Leah to be married to Jacob. Jacob spent the night with her, believing it was Rachel. He had everything he ever wanted. In the morning he woke, and as the Bible alone can say, behold, it was Leah. That's the nature of idols. When it comes to your idols, you work so, so, so hard to get them and to appease them. But in the morning, it's always Leah. And there's frustration. And there's disappointment. And there's a thirst that's not quenched, a broken cistern. The third lesson is a lesson for Christmas. A lesson for Christmas. Christmas is not ultimately about a baby in a manger. Christmas is about who that baby is. That baby is God incarnate. That baby is God in the flesh, God with us. And no doubt, as God refers to himself here in Jeremiah 2 as the fountain of living waters, we can't help but realize this. Turn to me to John chapter 4. I often let you listen to me, but I would, I would ask that you turn to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, uh, Jesus is making his way to Galilee, and he has to pass through Samaria. He comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and that's where Jacob's well was located. Jesus is weary, and so he sits beside the well And this is what we read, beginning at verse 7, John 4, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God. And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Just stop there for a second. Leave your, leave your Bible open there. But Jesus makes something abundantly clear there, doesn't he? And it's that he's God. Jeremiah 2.13, God says, God, says, God says, I am the fountain of living water. Here, Jesus tells the woman of Samaria, that He is the one who gives living water. You can do the math, can't you? You can understand what this means. It means Jesus is God. The God who revealed Himself to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah is here in the flesh with us. This is, this is the wonder of the incarnation that captivates us as Christmas, at Christmas. And I always love, this is one of my favorite sort of, I don't know if it's a discovery or something, you know, God, that, that I've noticed in Scripture and that's been pointed out to me in Scripture, but, but I love how, how things which are said about God in the Old Testament, they actually, they actually They aren't said about God again in the New Testament. They actually happen and take place and manifest themselves in the life of Jesus. Here's a couple examples. 
in addition to the one we just have about living water. Uh, Job 9 verse 8 says this, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And then we turn to Mark chapter 6 verse 48, and what is Jesus doing? He's walking on water. He's, he's treading on the waves of the sea. The point is clear. This is God. Another, another example. Psalm 23, 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Right? We all know that. You can turn again to Mark chapter 6. The fact that we're in Mark 6 again makes us think maybe Mark is trying to tell us something here. But anyway, we can turn again to Mark chapter 6. And uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 39. This is where Jesus feeds the 5,000. But right before Jesus feeds the 5,000, this is what we're told. Mark 6, 39. Then he, that is Jesus, commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Why would Mark write green grass? That's actually not something that happens very often in Scripture, that you're given that much description of something like grass. It also seems redundant. Isn't grass green? And yet, Mark does that for a reason. He's helping us see something. Of course, it'll help if you realize that the Greek word translated sit is best translated recline or lay down there in Mark 6.39. So, he, he, he made them lie down in green grass, right? We see what's going on. Jesus is God. The Lord, according to Psalm 23, 2, makes me lie down in green pastures. Here Jesus, about to feed the 5,000, commands them to lie down in green pastures. He is God. In the same way, Jeremiah 2, 13 says God is the fountain of living water. And now in John 4, Jesus comes offering living water. Again, the point is so clear. Jesus is God. And in Jesus, the God who made himself known to his people in the Old Testament, he is with us. There's a second thing made clear in John 4. And it's that Jesus has come. To call people who are weary of drinking from the broken cisterns of this world to himself. Let's continue reading. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then we read this, verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Do you see who this woman is, ultimately? Do you see what this woman was doing? She, she was drinking from a broken cistern, specifically the, the broken cistern of romantic relationships. Men were her idol. 
She was looking uh, to men to do for her what only God could ultimately do for her. And where did this broken cistern get her? Got her five husbands and a live-in boyfriend. Not exactly the life young girls dream about when they're in high school. And yet Jesus says to her, I can give you living water. I, 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 will, I can and I will satisfy the thirst within your soul which the broken cisterns of this world have not and cannot. Jesus has come to call people who are weary of drinking from the broken cisterns of this world to himself. Do you need to hear that again this morning? Have you, have you maybe lost your way? You, you knew sweet and precious fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, but that old idol factory went to work and you, you've given yourself to another lover. You've given yourself to another God. You've given yourself to drinking from a broken cistern. Or maybe you've never known sweet and precious fellowship with the Lord. Maybe... Maybe you've just drank from broken cisterns over and over and over again your entire life. You've just gone from one broken cistern to the next broken cistern to the next broken cistern trying to find a cistern that's not broken. Jesus offers living water. Jesus alone can and will satisfy the thirst of your soul. Of course, what we don't learn in John chapter 4 is how exactly Jesus would do this. That comes later in John's gospel when the one who offers living water is hanging on the cross for the sins of his people. And it's then... And it's there that we realize that, that what we need ultimately is forgiveness for our sins. What we need more than anything, what our soul longs for is peace and fellowship with the God who created us for Himself and for His glory. And truly... Truly, it's only God's word of mercy and pardon and peace spoken to sinners through the precious blood of Jesus which satisfies our souls and gives life to our spirit. It's only the assurance of God's love which the Holy Spirit working through the gospel brings to bear on our hearts that quenches the thirst within and so, my friend, I ask you again, are you thirsty? Is there a longing, an ache, a thirst in your soul that no matter how hard you try to quench, you cannot? Is there? There is. I know there is. Christ offers living water. He will do for you what the empty, broken cisterns of this world cannot in Him you will find forgiveness for all your sins, especially and even those terrible and shameful ones. 
People try today to, to atone for their sins in all sorts of ways. Honestly, the whole fetish with critical race theory is, in my opinion, an attempt to atone for sins. People give away piles of money in an attempt to atone for their sins. People volunteer all sorts of time in an attempt to atone for these sins. But rest assured, these efforts on the part of man to atone for his sins are broken cisterns which hold no water. They leave us thirsty. It's only in Christ that our sins are taken away. And it's in Christ that you will find that sweet and blessed fellowship with the living God who receives you as his own on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness, which is credited to your account by faith. Many, they look to their own righteousness, don't they, as the basis for their standing in fellowship with God. Your own righteousness is a broken cistern. It's Christ's righteousness, whichever and always gives us hope before God. In Christ, you'll receive the Holy Spirit to empower your obedience, to assure you of God's fatherly love and care. Many look to their own feelings to guide them. And to assure them of God's love, your feelings are a broken cistern. In Christ, you'll find meaning in your suffering. Many people, when they suffer, they they turn to sex, they turn to alcohol, they turn to drugs, they turn to recreation to dull the pain of their suffering. Those things are broken cisterns. It's only in Christ that we can make sense of our suffering, knowing that in Christ God is at work in all things to conform us to the image of our Savior. In Christ you'll find purpose every day. Many look to their children or their grandchildren or their career to give them purpose. Those things are broken cisterns. Only Christ gives us purpose knowing that in Him we've been redeemed to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In Christ, you'll find hope that no doctor, no medicine can provide and that the grave can't take away. In Christ, you'll find the love that no person can give. In Christ, you'll find comfort that no circumstances can afford. In Christ, you'll find peace that no drug or substance can produce. In Christ, you'll find joy which time can't take away. And you'll find riches which make gold and silver look like chump change. Christ will satisfy your thirst. Christ will do for you what the broken cisterns of this world have not and cannot. And so I ask in closing, are you drinking from a broken cistern? Or are you drinking from the fountain of living waters? Are you drinking what this world gives? Or are you drinking the water that Christ gives to all who take hold of Him by faith? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that like Israel, we are people who've often forsaken you and chosen instead to dig out for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns which hold no water. 
And we confess that like the woman of Samaria, we are people who have just gone from one broken cistern to the next, looking for something which only you can give. Forgive us for our sins and help us to drink deeply of your grace in Christ by faith. It's in His name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing again. Let's stand and sing together. There's a congregational meeting after the service, so just invite you to head out as normal, grab a cup of coffee or a cookie, say hello to a visitor, and come back in. Receive the parting blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen.